0: Hello fellow Earthlings, I'm Mike Matthews, this is for Life, welcome to a new episode. And this one is an interview with Scott Carney, who is a neat guy who makes a living doing neat things and then writing about them. So I first had Scott on the podcast some time ago to discuss his New York Times bestselling book, What? doesn't kill us which was an investigation into the world of Wim Hof you've probably heard of this guy so he's the guy who uses breathing techniques and cold exposure to do some extraordinary things to climb mountains in his underwear for example submerge himself into ice water for extended periods of time and even willingly exert control over his immune system. And so Scott had set out, I believe if I remember correctly, he said it was a commission from Playboy, and he set out to debunk Wim Hof and show how this guy was just a charlatan. And in the end though, Carney actually became an advocate of Wim Hof's and like a protégé of his and spent years practicing Wim's ways and eventually climbed a mountain with Wim in his underwear. So that was what doesn't kill us. And then, when that journey was over, Scott decided to take what he had learned from that and... To also explore some of the questions that that whole experience raised for him and that journey culminated in his newest book which is called the wedge and in this book Scott explores controlling your mind and your body to hijack stress the stress response and use that to push your limits and to experience life in a whole new way and that's what we talk about in this podcast podcast, including why too much comfort is unhealthy and harmful. Scott's thoughts on developing an unstoppable mindset, developing that level of grit and resilience. Scott talks about a fascinating kettlebell tossing routine that he says is one of the best ways to enter a flow state, and we talk about what that means. We also talk about how you can create new neural symbols to change your experience of different sensations and more. Now, before we get to the show, if you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and elsewhere, and if you wanna help me help more people get into the best shape of their lives, please consider picking up one of my best-selling health and fitness books i have bigger leaner stronger for men thinner leaner stronger for women i have a flexible dieting cookbook called the shredded chef as well as a 100 percent practical hands-on blueprint for personal transformation called the little black book of workout motivation these books have sold well over a million copies and have helped thousands of people build their best body ever. And you can find them on all major online retailers like Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Kobo, and Google Play, as well as in select Barnes and Noble stores. So again, that's Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, The Shredded Chef, and The Little Black Book of Workout Motivation. Oh, and I should also mention that you can get any of my audiobooks for free when you sign up for an Audible account, which is the perfect way to make those little pockets of downtime like commuting, meal prepping, dog walking and cleaning a bit more interesting, entertaining and productive. And if you wanna take Audible up on that offer and get one of my audiobooks for free, just go to legionathletics.com Audible and it'll forward you over, and then you can sign up for your account. Scott Carney's back, hey man.
1: Hey, how you doing?
0: Great. It's been nice catching up offline. It's been a couple years. Last time for people listening, we talked about Scott's previous book, What Doesn't Kill Us. That's it. Yeah. Yep. That was a couple years ago. And now he has a new book coming out called The Wedge. So here we are. Scott's an interesting dude doing interesting things. So I thought it made sense to bring him back and talk about this new book and some of the key concepts in it.
1: Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on again. It's such a weird time we're living in right now, and I'm really excited to sort of add my two cents into it with The Wedge. You've been up to interesting things.
0: I remember when I was talking to you after our previous interview and I asked what's next for you and it was this project. It sounds out there, right? So
1: why this book and why the title? What is The Wedge? So let me actually go back a little bit to the last book because they really do speak to each other. So in What Doesn't Kill Us, that started when I met this sort of madman slash prophet named Wim Hof. You've probably seen him around. He is the guy who spends more time in ice water than anyone else on earth. You know, he has developed this method by putting yourself under controlled stress. And with him, it's ice water and it's a breathing technique whereby he gains control of the automatic functioning of his body. And initially I went out to meet him at his training center in Poland in 2011 when he was a pretty much unknown on the global circuit. And I was on a commission from Playboy magazine, and I thought that what he was doing was going to get people killed. And he was a charlatan guru with this fake method to put people in ice and they were all going to freeze to death. So I wanted to go out there and debunk him as this fake. But instead, what happened is I was the first real journalist to cover him. And in a matter of probably about six days, I went from a complete skeptic to somebody who was climbing up mountains in my underwear in two degree Fahrenheit weather and realizing that we have this internal strength that all of us can access if we expose ourselves to uncomfortable conditions. And, you know, the culmination of that book is me climbing up Mount Kilimanjaro after about six, seven years of studying his method with him in a bathing suit. It's negative 30 degrees outside. You know, my skin is just bare to the environment and yet I persevere and I make it up this mountain. You know, it's been this epic journey. That book was like a New York Times bestseller and I get emails every day from people saying that it changed their lives. It Made them realize that they could connect with the environment and change the way they work. It was a wild ride, but at the end of it, at the top of Kilimanjaro, I'm thinking, well, I can expose myself to ice water, I can control my reactions to ice water, I can do this breathing technique that sort of really gets me deep into sort of a breathing meditation. But. What else is there? What can I reduce out of my experience with Wim Hof to further the field and apply a general principle that affects everything? You know, I wanted something really big. And so I spent the next three years exploring this concept called the wedge, which is the fundamental principle of just about everything that you do. Anytime that your mind interacts with your body, there's sort of a conversation between the stimulus, that hard thing that you're up against, whatever that is, and your mind saying, oh, I can do this or I can't do this. And how do we dig deep into that and create space between that stimulus and your response so that you have choice in how you respond? And that's what the wedge is all about.
0: It makes me think of resilience to use Mm -hmm. kind of a trendy term or grit, right? Being able to persevere despite hardship. I'm remembering you were telling me at the end of our last interview that you also were kind of curious to explore if there was a possibility of, I guess, a term could be a spiritual component mm-hmm. or maybe a metanormal or paranormal component to all of this.
1: Yeah, it's definitely not paranormal. Um, it is absolutely a part of the life process. Like this is not prana coming down from heaven that you sort of like qigong your way into some sort of superpower. It's an evolutionary power that every sort of biological creature has to respond to environmental stress in different ways. But there is a spiritual component to it as well. You know, you mentioned grit and Americans fucking love grit. Like the idea that you're on a parched desert and you're just gonna fucking go across that desert and you're gonna do it because you're gonna express your will on that desert and push your way through. it. Alexander the Great did it. I want to do it too. That's the thing that we love. And while I think that there is a place for grit, and that is something that you absolutely do want to explore in your body and your abilities. I am much, much, much more interested in the idea of flow. These are two actually diametrically opposed <laughs> physical and mental processes and sensations. Right, it's like, I wanna focus on the sensations you feel and how you can use those to accentuate your experience in the environment, accentuate your feelings of stress so that things happen naturally versus expressing your will on something which is ultimately often sort of self-destructive. Like, I mean, you were a big weightlifter, right? And you know that if you lift something that's too big, you can do it, right? You could do it at the expense of part of your body as you do it, and that's the wrong way to do it, right? Essentially, what you wanna do is find find ways to use those sensations, pay attention to those sensations, and then push yourself into a new place because of it. It's more about cooperation than it is about expressing your will and force.
0: So let's get down to specifics of, okay, how most people respond to normal stressful situations and how do they change that? And what are they trying to change it into according sure. to what you have discovered and what you talk about in the book?
1: One of the main concepts that I found by actually going to Stanford University and meeting with um, Dr. Andrew Huberman, as well as some neuroscientists at Wayne State University, the first question that I want to know is how do you experience stress in the first place? What is stress? Because, you know, for me, something that might be stressful for you is just a walk in the park. And I like to think about like the experience. Experience of like a soldier who had just come back from Afghanistan, who had a really rough time in Afghanistan. It comes back and watches a fireworks display in the States. And now this is a sort of a more stereotypical soldier. I don't know if this is necessarily a real one, but let's use this concept for a second. The fireworks display goes off and one person sitting in the audience loves it. And it's just this ecstatic experience of community and watching these explosions. And for the soldier who associates those noises with trauma, that could spike PTSD. Now, the issue is not with the fireworks. It's with with the human response. So, how do we encode those responses in our body in the first place and how can we take advantage of them? And it comes down to the nervous system. And this is something that if you think about the brain, where it is sitting in like this ball of fluid in your skull, it can't sense the world directly. All of those sensations that you have ever had in your life first come through your peripheral nervous system. It comes from your fingers and your eyes and your nose in these ways, and it transfers through chemical and uh, physical pathways into your brain and gets translated into sensation and emotion and whatnot. And I had to really do a deep dive into this. And it's this concept that I call neural symbols. Now, when you experience something for the very first time. And I'm going to use the example of ice water because I think people can really envision that very easily. When you first jump into ice water, that cold hits your skin, right? And it travels through all of your skin pathways into your spinal cord and up into the lowest area of your brainstem, which is the limbic system of your lizard brain. And your brain receives that signal as just data. It doesn't have any meaning as it comes in. And there's a volume button, it's a loud signal. And I like to think of the limbic system as something like a library of all other sensations that you've ever had. In charge of this library is a limbic librarian. Let's imagine some sort of nerd sensing the world from this sort of data port. The information comes in and the librarian looks at this signal of ice water and is like, hmm, if you've never felt it before, if you've never been in ice water before, it looks at this thing and is like, that's a novel sensation. It's really loud, but I have no idea what it means. So, the limbic librarian kicks that sensation up to another part of your nervous system called the paralimbic system, which is only about a centimeter away. And the paralimbic system picks this up and says, oh, well, what does this sensation mean? The librarian kicked it to me. And so, it attaches your current emotional state to that sensation. And then kicks it back down to the librarian and the librarian says, cool, the current emotional state, which is in ice water, it's unmitigated horror, right? You've never felt this before. It's just this terrible thing. And it says ice water means unmitigated terror and horror. And it files it in a way in the limbic library. And that's how you respond to that ice water. Now, here's the real magic with the neural symbols is that the next time you feel ice water, you get into that thing, the limbic librarian does not kick it up to the Paralymbic system. It says, look, I've already experienced this. It pulls that book off the shelf and it pulls off also your previous emotional state off the shelf and it says, okay, ice water, unmitigated terror, no need to do any more work. And what this means is that every single one of us, no matter what we're feeling, is we're feeling past emotions and sensations. No matter what, you're looking at the past. And what I'm trying to do with the wedge is create new neural symbols so that we take control of that process and attach whatever emotion we want to those sensations because ultimately, all of cognition emerges first through this sensor system. Everything you've ever done, these are the bits and bytes like in a computer of everything that you experience, including complex thought. Like if you're contemplating right now, it's like, why am I listening to this guy talk random stuff on a podcast right now? That was enabled because of neural symbols, because all of the grammar, the very base of the human consciousness is built on this process. How do you do that though? So, somebody who has taken an ice cold shower before,
0: probably many people listening. I've been doing it for a while, not because the There's anything really in the way of health benefits. Even if I'm up there, I would get up to like a few minutes in the shower. Yeah, it's super cold water. I live in Virginia, uh, winter. I can't pretend that that's the same, though, as take research on how winter swimming can impact the immune system. Those are people who are out there for a while, though. (laughs) It's a bit different than me taking a cold shower. I just do it because it wakes me up in the morning. And I think there's maybe a little bit of psychological value to doing something that I don't particularly want to do at seven in the morning or whatever. And it's become a habit. And I wrote about it and I recorded a podcast. So I'm sure a fair amount of people. People listening have tried cold exposure and never really got used to it. I remember one of the guys who worked with me, he would hyperventilate. That initial, that sheer kind of terror response seems to be almost hardwired. But what you're saying is that it's not necessarily, and you can change that. And if you can change that with something as raw as exposing your body to something that is very uncomfortable, that you could do the same thing with a lot of other situations in your life that you instinctively are just repulsed by, but then you can learn how to turn that into, would you say, going back to the term flow, which I assume you're using it in the Cheeks and Mihaly sense, or is that something that
1: needs to be clarified? It's very related to him. And I'm very glad that you've pronounced his name because I can't do it because it's spelled crazy. (laughs) I was like, huh, that's how it's pronounced. Yeah, it's very similar to that. So with What Doesn't Kill Us, the amazing thing about that whole journey with Wim Hof is that I dunk myself in ice water and I don't freeze. I actually get warmer. I actually hide hijack, thermogenic properties in the body and shift my heating response from shivering, which is the natural response to burning fat in water. You can actually master your biology and master the unconscious biology that you have by simply relaxing in that environment and forcing your body to do something else. So there are actually huge benefits. Even when you're doing your cold shower in Virginia, there are huge benefits, even if it's just for a minute in that shower, because what the first experience you have in it, that cold water goes on your back and it's horrible, right? It's like, oh, And you tense up. But what you're supposed to do, most people eventually will do is you relax in that environment. And when you do that, you switch from your fight or flight responses, what they call the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system, which is your rest and digest. And by doing that one switch, you actually alter your entire experience of being in there where you go from what could be panic. You mentioned this guy is hyperventilating to someone who is resilient to a stress that is standard coming from that faucet. And when you do that, you don't only master, I mean, who cares if you can fucking stay in a cold bath for a while? Like that doesn't matter. What does matter is what that does and how that rewires your nervous system, how it rewires the way you fundamentally respond to every stress that's out there. And ice water is one way and I love the ice water stuff. I've done that for 10 years now. But you could also do this with heat. You can do this with sex. You could do this with sleep. You can do this with psychedelic experiences. I mean, you can really go out there and find anything that causes causes a sensation externally, then modulate the way that sensation affects you because that is where you have choice. You have choice in how you feel something. And then when you have choice in how you feel something, you also learn that you have control over the automatic parts of your body that you didn't think you had control over. Hmm, That's an interesting thought.
0: I hadn't thought about it that way. And a couple comments. One is from the beginning of doing the cold shower routine, I always was pretty relaxed. And so I only remember shivering a couple times. And again, I live in Virginia. In the summer, the water's not that cold, to be honest. But in the winter, it is cold. It is ice water. And now, yes, I get in and I'm like, for the first second, it's like, uh, uh. That's my response, uh. But then I just kind of get into my routine. I timed it in the beginning, I don't time it now. I just do it until I actually don't really feel the temperature of the water anymore. It just kind of feels like a shower. And then I'm like, okay, that's enough. That makes me think of what you were saying with, if you can kind of hijack the process that usually runs on automatic. And that was kind of, I guess, my basic theory in the beginning. When I looked into the research on, okay, could this have explicit health benefits? I I came away thinking, no, almost certainly not. It's not enough exposure, but there could be psychological benefits. I didn't take it further. I didn't do the breathing. I didn't try to like tap into anything deeper than just, hey, I can become comfortable being uncomfortable. I do think there's value in that because that does seem to be a transferable skill, which brings me to my next question question for you is, so if I'm hearing you right, the idea that if through different methods, if you can learn to control a very fundamental process, again, that normally runs on automatic, that that can then touch and enhance many different aspects of your life where you experience things. Is the
1: common denominator here discomfort in any form? So it's anything that's powerful and sends a signal that's strong into your nervous system. And discomfort is one that I think that many Americans just fundamentally don't have much control over, you know, or are very, very averse to, right? Like avoid at all costs. Right. You know, we are so epically comfortable right now. If you think about where our ancestors came from, you know, 300,000 years ago. You don't have to go that far back, man. Just go back a couple hundred years. Totally. Ironically, take
0: someone who is in the 50th percentile of income, they live better now than kings
1: did just a few hundred years ago, all things considered. Absolutely. But our nervous systems are fundamentally the same as they were before. And here's the thing that's super important, is if we lived in a time where there were constant variations in temperature and various stress levels and, you know, actual threats, not like worrying about my 401k right now in an economic downturn, but I'm worried that that knight is going to chop my head off or that lion is going to come and chase me down. We're dealing with those threats that we have now our declining 401k with that archaic body. So that means you look at your 401k dropping, you release cortisol, you release adrenaline, you release your fight or flight response, but you're sitting at your desk watching a big lion go down. Whee! Right. And what does that mean? Like, yeah, that's a threat, but it's like a remote threat. Whereas our body's were actually meant to respond. When that lion ran at you, you don't look at the graph of your declining life to respond, right? You fucking run or fight the lion or you probably get eaten, let's be honest. But your body was primed to respond. And now when we sit and we watch that declining line and we release a cortisol, we release that other stuff, that energy that that produces turns inward and wreaks havoc on your body. And this is why the Wim Hof Method and actually all of these techniques that I'm looking at have this unexpected benefit, not only for anxiety, but actually autoimmune illnesses, things like arthritis and chronic disease, lupus, and anything else along those lines, because a lot of those things are caused by sort of a haywire relationship between the environment and your body. So, we're giving you correct, or at least more correct, stimulus so that you have that physical output that you can take control of these automatic things. You know, One thing that we often talk about in this world about human health, right, is that there's two pillars of human health. There's the way you move your body and the stuff that you put in your body. And there's this general idea out there that if you eat the right things and you move the right ways, you're going to get to some combination of good health. What I propose in What Doesn't Kill Us and more so in The Wedge is that there's this third pillar that we just don't fucking pay attention to, which is the environment, the way stress affects you and the way that you also have to respond to that? Because you could have the best six pack in the world, but if you can't go outside and handle a small temperature change, then you're pretty fucked up, right? (laughs) Actually.
0: I used to give one of the guys who works with me shit about that. So when I started doing the cold showers, he's this big, strong dude, right? A big beard, but he is such a pussy with cold weather. (laughs) I mean, if it's under 70 degrees, he's coming as if it's going to be a blizzard. He comes in with the full jacket and sweatpants, right? And so I was giving him shit over and over like to do the little cold shower thing with me. He tried one time and he came to work late that day. He was like, dude, it was awful. I sat right. in there for 20 minutes after with just blistering hot water. <laughs> I was like, something's wrong right. here,
1: dude. This is not natural. You are made for more than this. Come on, man. I mean, that's the scary thing about comfort. He's that kind of person. He likes to be comfortable. I mean, we all do. Even a fucking caveman wants to be comfortable. Like if you dropped somebody from 300,000 years ago, brought them into our world, they'll be like, yeah, I love the thermostat. Fuck you guys. <laughs> They're just
0: they're just going to sit by the air conditioner all summer and sit by the heater all winter and that's right. going to be it. Their
1: life is made. Because no one wants to do that stuff, but we need to. And that's the thing. And that's why we try to improve ourselves. That's why we try to go out there and do things. There's a whole type of training out there that you can get into. So, I want to talk about kettlebells with you guys, because I think that's something that's a very physical thing. Now, obviously, I go into a lot of different places in the book, but I found this kettlebell workout that to me spoke to something a lot deeper than just getting good muscles, right? I don't know what could be deeper than that, but I'm listening. (laughs) (laughs) I've seen your photos. I know your six packs have six packs, but go with me here. So I am not a mega super athlete, but I was walking out of a lab at Stanford talking about the way neural symbols will get wired together. And he tried to put me into a virtual reality simulator where I was swimming with virtual sharks to trigger my fear response so that I could try to take control of fear. The problem is, is that I'm not actually scared of virtual sharks. So I was like swimming with these things. i like, oh yeah, there's a great white coming at me and I don't care. So I left the Huberman lab a little bit let down because I wanted to be a little scared because you need to have a stress that you believe in in order to have something to control. Because otherwise, what are you pressing up against? Diving in a cage might be
0: a bit freaky and I'm not an easily spooked person, but I could imagine that being a bit disconcerting.
1: Oh yeah, sure. That's a real shark. I was with virtual shark. If that didn't work, you could have hopped in a cage and see how that hit your heart rate. I a hundred percent agree with you, but you know, I didn't have a cage available. So I was walking out of Huberman's lab and I get this phone call. Actually, it was a text message from my friend, Tony, who was like, dude, you got to go meet my friend, Michael Castro Giovanni, who can put you into an instantaneous flow state with kettlebells. And when I got that, message, I was like, that sounds lame because honestly, I'm not a kettlebell guy. I don't even really like gyms. There's things that I love doing. I love hiking. I love biking. But like, I'm not a weightlifter or anything like that. And I saw kettlebells. I was like totally turned off by it. But I had this feeling that I might as well see what he's talking about. So I meet Michael. So I go up from Palo Alto to San Francisco and I meet him on this hill. And Michael is like a gorilla, right? Like he is this just really big dude. You know, if he was angry at you, you'd be scared. You know, I'm not built that way and he's standing across from me with a kettlebell, which if you think about it, when you're facing another dude and he's got essentially a weapon in his hand, a cannonball, this thing that could fucking kill you. And he says, I'm going to throw this at you. It should spark a little bit of fear in you. It should. That is the correct response because he's like, I'm going to throw it at you. You're going to catch it and you're going to throw it back.
0: His one weird trick. Yeah. For flow. I love it.
1: Right. And so there's this sense of danger, even though I know he doesn't actually want to kill me. And he takes it between his legs. You know, it goes back. We're looking at each other's eyes. And this is sort of like, you know, somewhat of an aggressive stance between people. He lifts it up, goes up to like chest height with it, puts it back between his legs. And he does this three times. And on the third time, you go from looking at each other's eyes to the bell and it flies through the air. And I'm, you know, my asshole fucking puckers up and I'm like, oh, here it comes. And I grab the kettlebell. It goes between my legs and I then pass it back and all of a sudden this potentially confrontational moment turns from something that's sort of fear-based into a dance between two people. Because when you're throwing a piece of iron between two people, no one can be the winner, right? Usually, we're competitive against each other. We try to best people. But if you try to win with kettlebells, it's going to land on someone's foot. It's going to break someone's knee. It's going to be a bad thing. So, instead, you're both mutually visually tethered to this kettlebell as it flies through space. And because there is this threat, there's always going to be a threat of that kettlebell hurting you. You maintain absolute focus on that object. And because you're in focus onto a threat, you enter into a flow state where both of your movements are coordinated automatic because of that threat. And it is honestly a magical and almost spiritual experience. And when Michael Giovanni throws this kettlebell, he says to you, I love you. He says to you, you throw this kettlebell with love. You don't throw it with, competitive, betterness, anything like that, because you can infuse those physical motions and those sensations of fear. You can give it whatever emotional valence you want on top of it. Remember these neural symbols that I was talking about before? The neural symbol that's initially created is fear of being in confrontation to then being in cooperation with somebody. And it becomes a way to develop trust with another human. It is an amazing exercise. And from there is the idea that if you've broken, brought- broken, broken that negative
0: kind of automatic response by doing something like this that allows you to associate a different emotional response to physical danger. I'm assuming this is not something that you're saying, oh, you need to do this every day to maintain, or is that what you're saying? Or are you saying if you do it just even one time, it can allow you to kind of break through. And then in other situations where you might perceive some sort of danger that because you had this experience, you're now able to respond to it in a more positive or productive way than you would otherwise. Sure.
1: Absolutely. I do throw kettlebells regularly with people. And I find that it's a great way to build physical communication between people that fosters a trust between anyone. Probably could be a good workout too. Right? you doing kettlebell swings essentially, but you're throwing them. You're throwing like three or 4,000 pounds in like 15 minutes. If you got a 50 pound bell, that is not easy work. Which makes it more fun. I mean, that's more fun than just doing swings by yourself. So much more fun, right? And then you start freestyling. Like It's not just like a two-handed pass between your leg. You're throwing with one hand. You're going behind your back. Google kettlebell partner passing and you'll see it's almost like a dance. It's crazy to think of it that way because we don't usually think of workouts as dances. That sounds sort of like less cool in a way, but I tell you, it makes it so much more fun, so much more fulfilling. And Michael, who's been doing this for years and years and years, says he he finds the most interesting kettlebell partner passing when it's between couples, when it's two people who've been dating for a long time or married or whatever. And he says, I can see their whole relationship play out in how they throw those kettlebells. And honestly, it's hard to do it with your partner because all of these unspoken things, you know, think about any relationship that you've ever been in and there's areas that you don't want to talk about because, you know, it's just not worth it. You just don't want to like talk about this whole side of things, whatever that might be. And then all of a sudden, you're literally throwing something that could break their foot and your trust issues come out in that moment. And then as you continue with the practice, you learn to both trust each other again without ever using any words. It is amazing. Get fit and functional bodies and relationships. That's a good
0: twofer. (laughs) This reminds me of something you were just talking about a little bit ago, that there was a time when we were exposed to mortal danger multiple times per day. That was normal living and we evolved in that type of environment and now our modern world is drastically different, but evolution moves very slowly, so we're still working with this old hardware and old software that has been calibrated to this time in the past and certainly has not caught up yet. So do you think it's just healthy to expose ourselves, to take calculated risks almost, or expose ourselves to danger without doing it recklessly because then we just die and that would be kind of silly?
1: Right. Yeah, you're not chasing death, but you are chasing that sort of limit, where something goes from stress to danger. And you want to be able to push yourself right into that place where something could cause you damage so that you have the maximum range of physical, emotional movement. You know, as you said, you have to be responsible. But if we are just so comfortable all the time, we are constantly narrowing the band of where we can be comfortable, right? If you think about temperature, the 1890s in your house, it was 55 degrees, you know, with your wood-burning stove or whatever. Now, the average, temperature is 72 degrees in a house. I've given my wife shit when I've dropped the
0: temperature to 68 or 69. It's so cool. Yeah. It's so cool. <laughs> I've brought this point. I was like, you know, it's really not. She's a 105 pounds or something and mm-hmm. I'm 200 pounds. So there's a difference there. But you're completely right in that if comfort is taken too far, it actually becomes unhealthy. Right. If it's pursued too much to the exclusion of anything else, especially discomfort, it is unhealthy.
1: Right. And what is comfort anyway? Is it a thing like you have comfortable or is it really just a response to uncomfortable, right? I'm not even sure there is something that is like absolute homeostasis where you're comfortable everywhere. Are you in a flotation tank? Is that the ideal human state where everything (laughs) is taken care of by a perfect environment? That's not
0: human anymore. The calories are just fed into your mouth because you have to taste them still. You don't want it
1: to just go right into your blood because that's extra comfort. You know, you got to get the fat and the sugar and the salt. The pulp point of being alive is to explore and act in the environment with as much range as possible and as needed. Like, honestly, not everyone needs to climb up Kilimanjaro in their bathing suit, right? That's a little extreme, but you do want to be able to say, look, if I need to go do something, I can do it. And the problem with comfort is that as you proceed to some sort of Aristotelian ideal of comfort, you narrow your range constantly. So, we want to be able to push back against those borders. It's just like with weightlifting. If you never do any physical exercise, you're going going to get weak. That is the nature of the human body to be like, okay, I'm going to shed muscle because I don't need it. I don't use it. And then you've narrowed your range of what you can do. Now apply that concept to absolutely every sensation you can experience. And now you understand what I'm talking about with the witch.
0: This just occurs to
1: me that there's a bigger picture here too, of contributing some good genetic
0: material to evolution. (laughs) And the reason I say this because you look at, again, modernity and how easy it is to survive and how many people are alive now who would not be alive just even a hundred years ago and that's good in many ways but there's not as much evolutionary pressure now as there once was and that's good in some ways and it's bad in other ways and by doing this what you're talking about I feel like you can take some pride in that you are willingly applying that pressure to yourself maybe that's going to be part of your legacy
1: that is going to live beyond you you know well I don't think that's quite how evolution works like if I never- work out and I reproduce, or I work out all the time and I reproduce, that shouldn't affect the genetic profile of the child. It could affect the epigenetic profile, which is the sort of environmental changes. That would be my response to that, though, is it starts somewhere, right? And correct me if I'm wrong, but what I'm saying is
0: if you have a population of people of declining fortitude, let's just say, and they keep on reproducing and making themselves more and more comfortable and weaker and weaker and developing more and more autoimmune issues, that in time, some of these changes become, more and more permanent, and more and more fixed.
1: I don't really want to go down this route because if you really push that logic, you end up in Nazi eugenics programs.
0: Ironically, the eugenics programs started here and the Nazis just copied what we were doing. That's absolutely true. Eugenics is an interesting subject in that you take the Nazi stigma out of it and the concept makes perfect sense. Now, how it was implemented, it's starting here in the United States. That's where it goes wonky. I mean, nature has its own eugenics. Even women being biologically programmed toward hypergamy, like, yes, that's a eugenic eugenic eugenic
1: function. I have some thoughts on this, but I think what's more important, eugenics or evolution, these are things that take place over multiple lifetimes, right? That has to do with the reproduction, transmission of genes, and then the fitness of the genes in the environment. What I'm saying is that you have genes right now that you inherited from a legacy of 300,000 years. And this sort of comfort addiction that we have is really just a short run. And we're really talking like 100 years, and it's been really bad in the last 100 years. In the last 2,000 years, it has slowed, and thousands of years before that. We were actually really robust and really could exist in many environments. But what I'm saying is that you can use a stimulus to unlock your evolutionary resilience that you have already. We're not really talking about what you're going to pass to future generations. Hopefully it's habits. Hopefully it's ways to interact with the environment and ways to use your sensations to navigate the world in a way that isn't so complacent. And that's really what I want to do. We're not really talking about altering genetic lines because when you're talking about that level of thing, you're talking about altering mutations profiles, which is not really something that I get into at all. Makes sense. And I think your pitch is a lot
0: more enticing. It's just something I've actually thought about in other contexts. And I'm like, this actually kind of reminds me of this. And my mind goes to, there's also a bigger picture, but I totally get what you're saying. Hey, before we continue, if you like what I'm doing here on the podcast and elsewhere, and if you wanna help me help more people get into the best shape of their lives, please do consider picking up one of my best-selling health and fitness books. My most popular ones are Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, my flexible dieting cookbook, The Shredded Chef, and my 100% practical hands-on blueprint for for Personal Transformation, The Little Black Book of Workout Motivation. Now, these books have sold well over 1 million copies and have helped thousands of people build their best body ever. And you can find them anywhere online where you can buy books like Amazon, Audible, iTunes, Kobo, and Google Play, as well as in select Barnes and Noble stores. So again, that is Bigger, Leaner, Stronger for Men, Thinner, Leaner, Stronger for Women, The Shredded Chef, and The Little Black Book of Workout Motivation. Oh, and one other thing is you can get any one of those audiobooks 100% free when you sign up for an Audible account, and that's a great way to make those pockets of downtime like commuting, meal prepping, and cleaning more interesting, entertaining, and productive. Now, if you want to take Audible up on that offer and get one of my audiobooks for free, just go to legionathletics.com slash Audible and sign up for your account. Are there any other interesting techniques that you talk about in the book? So like the kettlebell, the partner swinging, that's great because that's something that people can do right away and they can get a good workout from it and get an experience of this flow state in overcoming this fear
1: response to danger. Is there another example? Well, throughout the book, I'm looking at ways to generate a larger library of neural symbols that we have by putting ourselves in stimulus. So I look at roughly 10 different sensations that you can create to change your literal experience of the world, then you apply a new emotional value to it. So, at one point, I go into float tanks and I see how float tanks, by radically reducing the stimulus from the external world, you can turn to look inwards. And it turns out that is an amazing thing to do to counter anxiety, depression, and PTSD. Like the psychological benefits are amazing. I also end up learning how to stay in a sauna for a crazy amount of time. I did this five-hour sauna in Latvia with my wife and two shamans. They call them Pirtniks, which is, you know, think about like the Druids in England, but the Latvian version of that. And these people are so fascinating because you're in this sauna and right as that point where I feel claustrophobic, I want to get out of that room, like it's just too intense for me, they take cold water and they just pour it on my feet. And that brings me right below my red line so that I can stay in longer. And over the course of four or five hours, they're doing these like weird shamanic rituals where they're adding different sensations into my sensation profile by like, giving me a food, which has a very interesting flavor profile, like, sort of like a bread made out of pine needles, which is super weird taste, right? But then they rub pine needles on my body as I'm in this very hot area and I start to experience synesthesia, which is the blending of senses so that I smell sound and I feel taste. And it's this totally bizarre experience. But what they're trying to do is confuse the way that I sense the environment to create entirely new, ground-up neural symbols. And we get out of it and, like, the world is brighter and fresher and cleaner than I had ever experienced it before. At the end of the book, I go down to Peru. Maybe you've heard of ayahuasca. I do three ceremonies of ayahuasca with a shaman where the ceremony isn't just about the psychedelic that you're taking, but it's about creating space and sounds, smells and touches and all of these things at once so that you can facilitate a really profound psychological and physiological change. You know, the whole journey with The Wedge, it sort of cracks open a way to think about your body in space in entirely different ways. And I guess the human experience in
0: entirely different ways. Let's just talk about the general types of stimuli. I have a pretty narrow range of stimuli. My life is pretty boring. That's funny when people ask me, they're like, oh, you never do any vlogging or behind the scenes of Mike's life. I'm like, it's not very interesting, guys. Like I wake up, I go in my sauna, I read, I go and work out, I go and work all day for, I don't know, however many hours. I go home, I eat some food, I eat the same food every day because it's healthy and the way that I want to eat. I put my kids to bed, Sometimes some time the wife, go to sleep, rinse, repeat, like that's it. It's a healthy routine, but it just makes me think of how narrow that experience is. And a lot of people have their own version of that. This is the exact opposite of that. Yeah. I am a big fan
1: of routines and I'm a big fan of breaking routines. You know, you have to have routines if you're going to be a high producer, minimally. Right. And I do a lot of the same things every day, but I also will find moments to have radically different experiences so that I can taste a lot of the world. Like one of the things I talk about in the book a lot is our nervous systems, ultimately anxiety, stress, these sort of negative feelings that we have boil down to evolution. It boils down to the fundamental stress point of evolution, which is death, right? You know, you have the fight or flight response because you're fighting or flighting something that will kill you. And that turns into a sensation that you experience as a human, right? Those experiences are supposed to move you to action, but ultimately everything you ever feel, the thing that forces forges those binary neural symbols is that pressure of death, you know, whether it's fear or even something like love, because love connecting with somebody who is very close to you fosters community, right? It fosters something that helps you survive and thrive in the world. And in this way, like everything out there comes down to that experience of being alive, the attempt to prolong the ability to have experiences in the world, to push death a little bit further out. And one of the really interesting insights that I've had for a long time is that death is the most important teacher we will ever have. Because no matter what, none of us are going to live forever. Like death is freaking coming. And I will promise you that if life were a song, it ends in a minor key because death is going to suck. And if we know, and if we've truly inhabited the knowledge that we have lost this game of life, that no matter what, we're coming up against that hard limit and it's fucking over, then what does that say about what you should be doing right now? Should you try to insulate yourself? Should you try to like protect yourself so that moment doesn't come? Or do you say, well, I know it's coming. I know I've lost. So that gives me freedom to have as many experiences as I can, to cram as many experiences as I can into my life so that when that comes, I will at least say that I have done much. I have tried things. I have experienced things. Because we know at the end of the day, it's a lost cause. It's going to happen. And whatever happens after you die, we don't really have any say in what that is. Like, I don't know, heaven, hell, Buddhist, rebirth, whatever. That is not for us to decide. That is for whatever the fundamental mechanics of the universe are. But we have this moment, this life right now to take risks, to go out there and try to become more rather than becoming less. I love it. And it
0: speaks to one of the things that I don't
1: like about,
0: I would say the fitness industry or fitness culture and what turned me off initially, almost made me not wanna get into the industry and just stick with publishing. I wanna do a publishing company. And that is the aesthetic obsession with the body, the kind of narcissistic side of it, right? Of wanting to look a certain way, but taking it too far where it just becomes unhealthy. But then there's also just the obsession over caring for the body and as opposed to using it more as a tool that we can experience life with and that we can use fitness to help us better experience life. But if we get too wrapped up with taking care of the tool and forget to live life, like for example, if somebody is restricting their social life because they're just too afraid of eating extra calories, let's say that it's not because they have some kind of competition coming up, although this would be the type of person to do that, but there's no real good reason for it. They're just worried about something related to their workouts or related to their abs or whatever. That that doesn't resonate with me at all, and that's not something that I would recommend. It's just not a mindset. It's not a healthy mindset. Amelia Earhart, I think it was, she quipped that she always would think with her stick forward, right? So the metaphor of like, you know, the throttle is always forward, and we're always moving ahead, and we're with. Willing to take risks and we're willing to figure out things and, and overcome obstacles and change plans. And I totally agree with that mentality and that approach to living.
1: Yeah, we want to be flexible. We want to be able to respond to situations. We want to be able to thrive in situations. And at the end of the day, if we fail at whatever we're doing, we can pick ourselves back up and we need to know that failure is part of it. Like not everything we do can work out. And Amelia Earhart's a great example. She died, right? But she's also a legend because of of what she did in her life. And I'd rather be a legend than somebody who had an extra 10 years on the end of his life. Other people may make different decisions and that's totally fine. But you also said something about the six pack life, right? I'm going to get my core to look as awesome as possible. And like that is somehow a value that is important in and of itself. And I think that if you're working out for your six pack, then that's the fucking problem. Like no one fucking needs a six pack. If you do want a six pack, you want your abs to be able to let you do things that you couldn't do normally. Like I want to be able to go on big hikes. I want to have adventures. I want to go do things. And what I look like shouldn't be the thing that affects the experiences. You know, think about working out. Like if you're working out just for the aesthetics of the working out, what you're doing is essentially saying, I don't like my body right now and I want it to look better. And you actually hardwire with neural symbols, anxiety into your workout. So the workout becomes work rather than fun, rather than something you enjoy doing.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And that can apply to many brass rings that we can try to reach for, right? The same type of pathology can afflict people with money and chasing status and material things. I'll say that when you get a six pack for the first time, it's pretty cool. You look in the mirror and you're like, oh, that's cool. I like that. There is some instinctive positive response to it, but it's also just a matter of doing it, which kind of comes back to more of the frame of reference that you were talking about, which is it's a goal and it doesn't really have to mean much of anything necessarily. I'd say, you probably even agree that some of the wild things that you've done in the scheme of things you did them because you wanted to do them
1: and believe it or not I did them without a six pack <laughs> life can be lived without yeah, a six pack I did packs. it that's I did true. it <laughs> uh,
0: but, but yes it's one of those just just my personal experience
1: I've seen you your do photos I've seen your photos you do
0: it the first time and you like it I'm not going to lie trust me what you're going to notice and it's cool to hear from people I hear from people all the time who go through this experience where they get in really good shape for the first time and they do like the aesthetic of it that's probably half of it, right? But then the other half really becomes obvious to them that it's not so much about having the six pack. It's more, let's take, for example, that a lower level of body fat, unless it's taken too far, is generally healthier than a high level. There's a range, obviously. If you're a guy and you're in the range where you can start seeing your abs, you're in a healthy range. And if you came from a very unhealthy place before it's not just what you see in the mirror right they're like shit i have more energy i have more self confidence because let's face it like i look better now and people treat me differently again I, and i hear from people all the time that's a, one of those kind of hidden benefits of let's say getting a six pack or getting in really good shape is it does positively impact your life in many other ways for me i would say maybe it's also i'm just used to the way i look but yeah sure there's still a point of vanity of why i'm in the gym lifting weights i value a lot of the other stuff, at least as much, if not more. And it is more to the point of what you're saying about how fitness allows me to more engage with the various people in my life that matter to me and the activities that matter to me and to be able to more richly experience the experiences that I do have, even though right now (laughs) I'm very much in a routine. But anyway, I'm just sticking up for us six pack (laughs) folk.
1: That's a group that definitely needs defense these days. (laughs) Us people who are still watching our <laughs>
0: calories <laughs> and maybe I just need to break free of it all and stop caring you no know, we need to
1: put you on the pot belly the fit to yeah. fat to fit
0: thing yeah whatever, yeah yeah right? <laughs> I don't think I would make
1: it too far dude I'd be like
0: fit to maybe a little bit fatter
1: and then like go back to fit <laughs> Absolutely. Fitness is important. I've never been unfit. And I think that there is a balance. I just think living in balance is the most important thing overall. And it's how you interact in the world, which I care about much less than aesthetics. I
0: understand that. My last question for you is you had mentioned there was a spiritual element to all of this.
1: What does that mean? So it's realizing that one, we're not as important as we think we are. When you get into a flow state, when you're really connected, when I got up to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro, My realization was that, and I know it sounds cheesy, so just like forgive me a little bit of this cheesiness, is that I thought to myself, I am not on the mountain. I am the mountain. Like a Zen cone kind of thing. Absolutely. And I was living that. And even as I said it, I was like, I'm going to think this is cheesy later. But at the moment I'm on this thing. And I realized that the way I'd gotten up to this top, this very difficult physical feat, remember negative 30 and my nipples are out in the world, right? I'm doing a physical feat, which is crazy. And I get up there and I realized that I didn't get up there by fighting the sensations, by fighting the mountain. I got up there by letting those sensations flow through me, by letting myself connect to that environment. And I I realize at the top, Alan Watts, I begin the book with a quote where he asks this very, very big question, which is who would you be without the sun? Right? Who would you be without that large ball of exothermic reactions happening, you know, way off in space? Who would you be without that? And if you take that not as a silly statement, but actually as a serious question, the sun has allowed everything to occur around you. It allowed the earth to form. It allowed history to happen. It provided energy for the plants. It allowed you to exist in the first place. And to think that we are at all separate from those processes of nature is absolute hubris because we are the... The products of our own personal genetics. We are the products of our own personal histories. We are the sum of every interaction with every other person. When I speak with you on this podcast, I'm a very different person than who I speak with my wife on this afternoon or with my mother or with my best friend. We are our contexts. Who we are is about being part of what is essentially a super organism of this planet. And when you really think about that, it's a profoundly moving thing. You realize that my own personal triumphs and whatever, I can experience the world as me, but I am also you. Whether you like it or not, you have listened to me and those words have had some sort of impact on you. Whether it is, I hate this guy, he's stupid, or this guy's amazing and I believe everything he says. Somewhere between that, you cannot deny that me saying something has had some sort of impact on you. It has changed you in some fundamental way, positive, negative, doesn't matter. It's the fact that we are all connected and everything you do also affects the people around you. And that trickles out as sort of like waves in a pond where people are throwing rocks into this pond. Every action is a rock and those ripples go out everywhere. And that's going to echo into the ages though too. it
0: comes back to the point (laughs) what I was bringing up and this maybe is a word that's unpalatable to people, but then if you have an awareness of that, there's almost a responsibility that comes with that in terms of how you act and realizing that the ramifications are a lot more extensive than maybe how the average person thinks about their life and their
1: existence. Yes. And you know what the key, the core interface between all of those things is, is your sensations, because I know that I'm experiencing you and we are all sort of like one thing, but the litmus, the definition of our borders, of our consciousness are our sensations of that consciousness, of those stress points. And as we learn to expand our stress levels, how we respond to the environment, how we respond to things outside of us, it actually expands who we are as people. It makes us bigger. makes our consciousness more, you could say, important, more impactful, more human. And that
0: also then affects the collective. Yes. Consciousness as well to one small degree. And that matters. People don't vote. Say, what does one vote matter? No, it does matter because collectively, if you have enough people to think that way, oh, that matters now. Right. If you think the other way, then that matters. So you need to do your part. It doesn't have to be voting or giving money to politicians. Same thing. One of the guys who works with me, he's a fan of Bernie Sanders, right? And he voted for him and he's a busy guy. So he mostly is just working, but he really likes what Bernie's doing. And I asked like, have you ever given money to him? No, that's the number one thing politicians need. They need money, right? And he's like, oh, well, you know, what does my $50 matter? I'm like, no, it absolutely matters because how many other people think that way? And then he misses out on, who knows, it could be tens of millions of dollars of funding. So it's more a matter of acting in the way that you know is right and contributing to this collective movement in this case. And I do agree with what you're saying about us being all connected in ways that we still don't understand. It's interesting to study the history of mass movements and there might be something too. The more people taking certain actions, it could be invisible, it could be unspoken, but the more people are doing things or thinking in certain ways, the more contagious that behavior becomes, whether good or bad. So my comments on agreeing with what you're saying, I think it's interesting to think about.
1: Absolutely. Well, thank you so much for having me on. This has been a lot of fun. And I suggest that anyone who is out there is interested in learning more. Obviously, you can get a sample chapter of The Wedge, the first chapter on my website, scottcarney.com, C-A-R-N-E-Y, and I'm on all the other social media places. But yeah, go download the first chapter and see if you think that I'm crazy or not, because actually I need to know. And when does the book come out? April 13th. Well, Scott, hey, thanks for taking the time. This is a fascinating
0: discussion. I was looking forward to it and you did not disappoint.
1: Great. Well, thank you so much for having me on. Uh, You know, next book, I'll be back.
0: I like it. All right. Well, that's it for today's episode. I hope you found it interesting and helpful. And if you did, and you don't mind doing me a favor, could you please leave a quick review for the podcast on iTunes or wherever you are listening from? Because those reviews not only convince people that they should check out the show, they also increase the search visibility and help more people find their way to me, and to the podcast and learn how to build their best body ever as well. And of course, if you wanna be notified when the next episode goes live, then simply subscribe to the podcast in whatever app you're using, to listen and you will not miss out on any of the new stuff that I have coming. And last, if you didn't like something about the show, then definitely shoot me an email at mike at muscleforlife.com and share your thoughts. Let me know how you think I could do this better. I read every email myself and I'm always looking for constructive feedback. All right. Thanks again for listening to this episode. And I hope to hear from you soon.